Welcome to Catholics Across the Isle, the podcast of the Florida Conference of Catholic Bishops, offering commentary on public policy and civic life. This is Michael Sheedy, Executive Director of the Conference. Well, the legislative session really ended with respect to deliberation on substantive bills late on the evening of Friday the 13th. Uh, There was some budget work that remained, and it finally concluded on St. Joseph's Day, Thursday, March the 19th. Every session is a bit different in terms of the members, the bills that are debated, and uh, the ways that they uh, come together and and just deal with the the work of the people of Florida. Uh, This is a good opportunity for us to reflect back on the session, some of the key commitments of the bishops of Florida and the work entrusted to the work of the Florida Conference of Catholic Bishops. To do that with me today is Ingrid Delgado, Associate Director for Social Concerns and Respect Life, and clearly one of the commitments of the Catholic bishops of Florida and really the United States and the world is trying to limit the harm of abortion, uh, changing hearts and minds, and that's a good place to start, Ingrid. There were a number of bills filed in the legislature this year that related to abortion. There were. So, you know, there were bills that would prohibit an abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detected. There were bills prohibiting abortion after 20 weeks when unborn children are capable of feeling pain. But really, the pro-life advocates in the state of Florida really coalesced around a bill requiring parental consent prior to a minor's abortion. I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that this is common sense legislation, right? I know I've had to sign consent forms for my children to get their asthma medication at school and for my daughters to get their ears pierced. So, you know, that and the fact that this is already the law in so many states around the country, I think, really helps bring together the pro-life community in Florida in support of this bill. Yeah, and here in Florida, we have sort of had a unique situation in that there have been more rights afforded under our state constitution than exist under the U.S. Constitution relative to abortion going back to that NRETW ruling. Right, and and that's why passage of this particular bill this session is particularly exciting. So back in 1988, a similar bill was passed requiring parental consent prior to a minor's abortion. But in 1989, the Florida Supreme Court at the time found that it was unconstitutional. And really, when we look at the decision, a lot of the concerns that the court had back then had to do with um, the judicial waiver process. And we believe that those concerns have been addressed in the bill that passed this session. So we do look forward to the governor signing this bill into law. He had said he would at the beginning of session. Um, And we do look forward to this being an opportunity to revisit that 30-year-old decision. All right. Yeah, we've got a new, relatively new Supreme Court, a bunch of new appointees from Governor DeSantis and I think they've sort of almost telegraphed that they're almost expecting this to be challenged and, and they're given us some reason to be optimistic that it will be upheld, I'd say. Right. There was a decision not too long ago in regards to a death penalty ruling. And so in in that case, when the Supreme Court revisited an old decision, you know, it wasn't maybe aligned with our position, right? That had to do with um, juries being unanimous in death penalty cases, but it does open up the opportunity to revisit other cases such as this, such as striking down parental consent that really, I think, harmed a lot of young women in the state of Florida. Well, it was notable, I think, that 
the governor uh, really called on the legislature to to get him a bill that would require parental consent. Both Senate President Bill Galvano and Speaker Jose Oliva really showed early on that they they were committed to getting that bill to the governor, and they gave the important time that was needed to debate it and to have it, give it a full hearing. Uh, you had a chance to work with the bill sponsors. Now, what can you tell listeners about Representative Aaron Brawl and Senator Kelly Stargell? So I think you're right. We had leaders in both chambers who cared enough about this bill to help it move along successfully this session. But the two ladies who were the primary sponsors are really just amazing and committed to these issues. Um, on the Senate side, Senator Kelly Stargell cares about this from a personal place, right? She shared her story more than once this session about being a young mom who was unmarried and who found herself to be pregnant unexpectedly. She was ready for every unfriendly amendment that was filed, and she really just was a great leader on this issue in the Senate. And then her counterpart in the House, Representative Erin Grawl, she's Catholic, she's an attorney, and just extremely well prepared to address legal issues as they came up on this bill, especially from the opposition. And just they both did it with incredible grace because just having a bill filed and move in any session is difficult, but especially when it is a difficult issue such as abortion. You know, these sponsors are sometimes attacked by the media. They're attacked personally. They're hearing from the opposition all the time. And then they're on the floors of, you know, their respective chambers for hours on end, right, during debate, during questions, and both of them have done uh, it with extreme grace this session. Yeah, I have to agree, Ingrid. The, the sponsors were outstanding. They really gave it themselves. It, it's a grueling process to be a sponsor of such a bill, and I don't know if everybody appreciates that fully, but, you know, they really were, were as you said, very graceful, well-prepared and really handled this whole issue uh, with great dignity so and courage. Well, Ingrid, you mentioned the debate on this bill. And, you know, in a, in an important issue like this, the chambers do give considerable time for the debate. I wonder what stood out to you in your memory as you recall the debate on these bills. You know, I mentioned on the Senate side, Senator Stargell shared her personal story of being a teen mom. And in the House debate, what stood out to me was Representative Kim Daniels, who is a Democrat who um, did sign on to be primary co-sponsor on this bill. She shared her personal story of being a teenager who had a botched abortion. And she remembered being back at school when she was hemorrhaging. And when someone came into the bathroom to help her, the first thing that they said was someone called her mother. And that really just reminds us why this bill matters, because parents should be involved in the decision-making of their child's health care, but especially in something like abortion. I, I will tell you, Ingrid, uh, Representative Daniels' uh, debate definitely brought tears to a lot of eyes, I could tell you. There were a few other Democrats in the House who, who debated and supported the bill as well. There were, you're right. Rep. Daniels wasn't the only Democrat to support parental consent prior to minors' abortion. Um, she was joined by four other Democrats, notably Representative Bush and Representative Jaquette, also debated in favor of this common sense bill. 
But really, I think this is going to be a bill that is certainly going to be notable in the history of abortion policy here in Florida, we hope, bringing us back in line with other states in terms of the the access to abortion afforded by our state constitution. We'll, we'll wait to see. But we do look forward to the governor signing this into law, and we have to be grateful for the leadership in both the House and the Senate that made it a priority. We'll see. We're cautiously optimistic at this point that it will go into effect and be upheld, and, and we'll see where we go from here. Well, uh, you know, this March 25th, we really celebrated the 25th anniversary of Pope St. John Paul the Great's Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life. He did reflect rather deeply on both abortion and the death penalty. And we did have legislation filed this year that would uh, strike the death penalty from our state's laws. And I've always been impressed that uh, Representative Joe Geller is, has been a sponsor, and he's also been rather complimentary to you, Ingrid, and to the church's position on matters of human life and dignity. Yeah, the comment I hear most often directed at us at the state capitol is that even though members don't always agree with us, they respect our consistency. And that's something that I've definitely heard from Representative Geller, right? Death penalty repeal sponsor in the House that, you know, as a Democrat, he isn't aligned with us on our position on abortion, but does respect and admire our consistency in protecting life. And I just think that there is such a profound beauty and wisdom in that consistency in the church's teaching. And so even though those bills to repeal Florida's death penalty haven't been considered by committee, there have been opportunities to highlight other aspects about the death penalty. So, you know, the state of Florida is a national outlier when it comes to the high number of death sentences, the high number of executions in the state of Florida, and also the high number of death row exonerees. And so this session, we were able to support a bill that would provide compensation for the wrongful incarceration of Clifford Williams, who was incarcerated for 43 years. Four of those were on death row, and he was compensated with $2 million for his wrongful incarceration. Yeah, it was something to see him uh, with his wife and his family up in the gallery as the House was bringing that bill to final passage, wasn't it? That was a beautiful moment, and it really reminds us that incarceration doesn't only affect the person that's incarcerated, but really there are so many people that are affected by it. First of all, their families, but also, you know, the the workers in these facilities and just our community at large is, is affected by our criminal justice system and by the death penalty. When I think about this session, I think about the death penalty. I also think of James Daly and his case that, you know, that's been playing out. He had a death warrant signed. Can you comment a bit on, on his case and how it played out? Yeah, so James Daly's death warrant was signed many months ago, but then his execution was thankfully stayed. And so his death warrant has now expired. Fired, but his case really is still kind of going through a judicial process. And just in March, there was an evidentiary hearing in the Sixth Judicial Circuit Court down in Clearwater because someone else has admitted that he alone was responsible for the, te- the death of Shelley Baggio. Now, that has been recanted, you know, and then restated and then recanted again. But James Daly has always maintained his innocence. Um, and so I'll also mention that our office joined the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops 
in an amicus brief to the U.S. Supreme Court in his case. So, you know, number one, there is a concern with the fact that this man has evidence of actual innocence that hasn't been considered by the courts. But also, you know, the position of the church is that the death penalty is not necessary to protect society, you know, and, and Many listeners may remember that Pope Francis directed the revision of the catechism back in 2018 to say that the death penalty is inadmissible. And it's not that the church has changed its position. It's that modern penal systems can now protect society through incarceration, and therefore that makes the death penalty unnecessary. And doesn't Pope Francis really follow both Pope Benedict and Pope John Paul II in highlighting these concerns with the death penalty? Absolutely. Both of his predecessors had asked for, you know, commutations of death sentences before him. And St. Pope John Paul II had said that if if the death penalty were ever carried out, it should be in very rare circumstances. So this really does echo decades worth of church teaching. Well, you know, it's interesting as we uh, look to the future and future legislative debate over the death penalty, hopefully in a post-coronavirus pandemic Florida, it's hopeful that we can revisit the death since it's both an attack on human life, which hopefully we recognize as increasingly sacred, the more that we do to protect ourselves and one another through social distancing and trying to flatten the curve, but also just sort of the economics of it, you know, when you consider the cost that it entails. We've been trying to get more reflection on that, wouldn't you say, Ingrid? I think that's absolutely right. You know, we are investing so much right now in protecting life, right, from the coronavirus. And so I think that just really gives us great perspective on how we should always aim to protect life, all life. And there is a very high cost in carrying out the death penalty, looking at some cost studies in other states. Florida hasn't had a cost study in a long time, but looking at other states just to seek that costs a million to a million and a half dollars more than seeking a sentence of life. And the reality is that those dollars could have been reinvested in many different ways in the state of Florida, including an emergency fund for a crisis such as we find ourselves in right now. It is so interesting that pursuing death sentences does cost more financially. I think most people presume that, oh, if you end a life, you don't have to take care of a person during their incarcerations. But really, it's much more expensive to pursue a death sentence. Could you talk a little bit more about what drives those costs? Yes. So in a capital case, there are more stages than in a non-capital case, right? So we have guilt phase, we have sentencing phase, and then we have really a third phase where the judge gets to kind of uphold or override the jury's recommendation of death. And then also just bringing in additional experts, mitigation experts that could bring forth psychological testing, you know, childhood traumas, things like that. All of that has a higher cost than seeking a life sentence. Also, rightfully so, the state is concerned with the potential of executing innocence. So there are automatic appeals processes in death cases that will cost the state more. And then on top of that, just the incarceration of someone on death row, because it is higher security, has an increased cost over incarceration in general population. Well, as we uh, we come out of the fog of this coronavirus, it's really my hope that the legislature will will look more closely at the death penalty, both for cost savings um, and recognition of the harm it does to the dignity of human life. Well, we've spoken a bit about human life, 
and our commitments to protecting human life. Human dignity is also one of our great commitments. And uh, we need to talk a little bit about vulnerable members of our society and of the world family, particularly of immigrants. Governor DeSantis uh, ran on a platform uh, being tough on illegal immigration. Obviously, immigration is usually a federal issue. That said, you know, last year he did sign a new law that prohibited so-called sanctuary policies. Ingrid, for listeners who are not familiar with these, what are they and do they really have they really existed in Florida? So the term sanctuary cities in and of itself is problematic because it creates this perception that somehow, you know, somewhere undocumented immigrants who are also criminals are shielded from prosecution. And we know that that's not the case, right? We know that, you know, arrest and prosecution happens independent of someone's immigration status. So the term sanctuary cities has also been used to say that certain localities do not comply with federal law. And we know that that was also not the case in the state of Florida. And the bill that passed last session regards to sanctuary cities was problematic for lots of reasons, but primarily because it went much further than is required by federal law. So federal law in this regard really only says that information sharing shall not be prohibited or restricted. And and that just was not happening in any jurisdictions in Florida. The bill that was passed and signed required that every local jurisdiction comply with federal immigration detainers, which those are only requests. And so, again, it went much further than federal law, and it really just circumvents local subsidiarity because lots of local jurisdictions were already entering into these agreements with ICE on their own, but this now mandated every local jurisdiction to enter in these agreements. And they often have to take on uh, the additional cost of detaining someone for longer waiting for ICE to come and it's becoming very expensive for some jurisdictions, as I recall, as well. You're right. They had to take on the additional cost, but also the liability. So there is some case law that says that the local jurisdiction would still be liable in the cases of honoring erroneous detainer requests. Well, this year, uh, the focus for both the governor and for the legislature related to the use of the E-Verify. Can you tell us about E-Verify? Yes. So I think that the common thread in opposing the Sanctuary Cities Bill last session and the E-Verify Bill this session is that everyone recognizes that, you know, federal immigration law is, is flawed, is broken, and it has to be addressed. And we heard that from members of both major parties this session. However, some members, even in, in recognizing that, still uh, voted in favor of this bill. And so originally the bill required all private and public employers to use the E-Verify system. And so that in and of itself is problematic. Now, where the final bill landed was that it's optional for private employers. They can use E-Verify or they can continue to follow current um, federal law requiring I-9 documents. Now, the employers that don't use E-Verify would be ineligible from certain, you know, incentives from the Department of Economic Opportunity, but it was an improvement over the bill as it had been filed originally. I'll also say that something problematic in the bill is that it would require all employers to hand over to, you know, uh, prosecutors and the uh, Florida Department of Law Enforcement 
employment documentation without warrant, without probable cause. Um, and that could be a problematic provision moving forward. We can only hope that uh, those kinds of encroachments might be litigated uh, in favor of those who hold those records. We'll have to see. I think they will, but I hope that the conversation will inspire reform at the federal level. The bishops have long called for comprehensive immigration reform at the federal level and have opposed enforcement-only measures such as this and state measures such as this, since immigration is in the purview of uh, the federal government. But, you know, enforcing a flawed law just isn't the solution, right? The solution is comprehensive immigration reform that addresses the causes, the root causes of migration in sending countries that does address the economic demand that we create for migrant labor, that we can, you know, expedite uh, family reunification visas. And something like E-Verify really only makes sense as part of a bigger package that addresses these other issues as well. Well, thanks, David, for that good insight into the E-Verify bill that was passed. I know folks may have some questions about our advocacy around immigration. There are some really helpful resources on our website, www.flaccb. That's a three-letter Florida abbreviation. And then the CCB of Conference of Catholic Bishops under our immigration tab. But we've got a great brochure, some overviews, and some key points just to raise for folks who have questions. Well, Ingrid, it's been a pleasure to to reflect back on some of the key issues that, that were substantive issues. But why don't we talk a little bit too about the budget, uh, because, you know, a lot of our public policy work relates to some of the programs that need and require funding from the legislature to continue. Sure. So two items that stand out to me are, number one, support for a recurring appropriation to the Florida Pregnancy Support Services Program. And so this is a network of approximately 100 pregnancy centers around the state that support women and their families in choosing life for their unborn children, whether they um, eventually parent that child or place that child for adoption. And so the network has grown quite a bit over the last 15 years, ever since they started to receive a state appropriation from the budget. Right now, we are receiving $4 million in recurring money. Services have expanded to now include wellness services for the women that come to these centers. But we do look forward to an even higher increase in future years so this good work can continue. And we also advocate for full funding of the state affordable housing trust funds. For many years, trust fund dollars were swept into general revenue, but we are absolutely thrilled that the legislature passed the budget this session fully appropriating these monies. The Catholic Conference is actually an original member of the Sadowski Coalition, which was established in 1991 in support of this dedicated revenue source. You know, and in the state of Florida, there are over 922,000 low-income Floridians that spend more than 50% of their income on housing. That's not affordable. And so it's, it's a great need in the state of Florida, and hopefully this full appropriation will start to address that need. But it's not just providing affordable housing to the families that need it. It also creates over 30,000 jobs in our state. And $4.4 billion, that's with a B, 
$4.4 billion in positive economic impact in our state. Well, great points on key commitments uh, to these budget items. Way to go, Ingrid. Thank you for that. And thanks for a great work this session at the front of the wedge for the conference, making sure that lawmakers know about our concerns, our interests, and helping them to get these things over the finish line. So well done. Well, thank you, Michael. It's an absolute honor to serve the conference in this role. Thank you for listening to this episode of Catholics Across the Aisle. The conference engages in a broad range of policy issues, and I encourage you to join us for additional post-session interviews with our Associates for Education and Health, where we discuss the 2020 session in these two areas of policy as well.